Imagine, demand and build a world transformed. Hi everyone, my name's Jamila and I'm the Finance and Fundraising Coordinator for TWT. In this week's episode of Understanding TWT, we spoke to Red Pepper co-editor and co-founder Hilary Wainwright. Hilary spoke to us about the history of the New Left from the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, how the Soviet Union's domination of its bordering countries led many socialists to reevaluate their understanding of Marx, the party and the state, and how TWT fits into and is informed by that history. We hope you enjoy the talk, and if you've been enjoying this series, please consider supporting us at theworldtransform.org. There's been a constant sort of process of, you know, a new left and then a new, new left. And probably in about 20 years time, people will say, well, the new left or the new, new left began with TWT. So um, I'd say TWT is very much in the tradition of the different new lefts that go back, well, in my opinion, go back to um, 1956, or the contemporary New Left. I mean, you could say we've got traditions like William Morris and so on, and of course Marx um, and parts of Trotsky and, you know, that we could draw on. But in terms of a contemporary um, sort of continuity, well, moment that has got many continuities that have been elaborated on and developed since that period, but within the lifetime of some people alive, uh, is the moment of 1956 when the Soviet Union um, brutally repressed a movement, well, not a movement, a mass uprising in Hungary um, that was a, a really a, a movement for democracy and freedom. It wasn't anti-communist, it wasn't anti um you know the socialization of production um but it was wanting democracy wanting freedom in that context and um it, it was also in a way implicitly or increasingly explicitly um against the sort of i won't say imperialism but domination of the soviet union over its border countries like hungary and czechoslovakia and the rest of central europe now that, you know, that that suppression, I mean, after a period of negotiation and so on, um, in the end, the Soviet Union sent in tanks and 2,500 people were killed and 200,000 left Hungary. Now, imagine if you're part of a party, you know, the Communist Party in Britain, which was not massive, but it was significant, had a lot of importance and influence in the unions and therefore in parts of the Labour Party. But, you know, if your party that looked to the Soviet Union, looked to another country as its kind of model, and that model started actually, you know, attacking, invading um, uh, a, a, another country and repressing and killing, well, literally thousands of people, you know, that would cause a shock. And it caused a huge shock, a sort of political earthquake in the Communist Party. And one result of that um, was that many um, intellectuals and also um, both intellectuals in the sense of academics and writers, but also many, you know, in a way, most of the Communist Party were thoughtful and 
um, you know, or what Gramsci called organic intellectuals, people who haven't necessarily had an academic education, but have in their own way developed an academic, or not an academic, but an intellectual capacity to interrogate, to criticize, to, to read widely. It led to a, an exodus of these people, sometimes not leaving immediately, but a lot of angst, a lot of, a lot of discussion. They would discuss with each other, meet with each other. You know, in the Communist Party, it was banned to have contact between branches, you know, because the British Communist Party, you know, was also rather authoritarian. And so that idea of networking across branches was complete no-no. But of course it happened after 56, people got in touch and discussed and what's going on and what's socialism. And that led to a number of people leaving, um, most notably um, E.P. Thompson, you know, the, the wonderful social historian who, who wrote The Making of the English Working Class. Um, also, um, John Savile, you know, a, a notable historian. And then other people who I can't quite remember when they left at that point, or, you know, a lot of people left in the years to follow. Raphael Samuel, another historian. I mean, there are a lot of historians that interestingly left at that time. And then masses of, of teachers, workers, worker intellectuals, um, you know, and, and it was a significant enough um, movement of people leaving the Communist Party or almost leaving um, to, to form a movement, literally, uh, of what was called the new left. The new left meaning a left that was dissociating itself from the what was considered the left at that time, the Communist Party, the, the Soviet Union and the communist tradition. And they formed left clubs across the country um, which were clubs that would read. I mean, in a way, the experience of the Soviet, of the Soviet invasion of, of Hungary had just thrown into question, you know, what is socialism? So in, previously, there was, an, uh, to an extent, you could say socialism, that's the Soviet Union, you know, the command economy. There was a sort of what, what many people in the communist tradition felt was a working model. I mean, Obviously, even in the 30s with Stalin and so on, there was a lot of debate and argument about whether it was, you know, and a lot of people felt it wasn't and, and weren't in the Communist Party. But but for those that were, it, it, it was a kind of model, basically, um, even if it needed democratization. And people hoped for exactly the democratization that the Hungarians were arguing for, um, but that was repressed. So that felt like the end of a line and people needed to rethink what socialism was, where, where do we find it, how do we create it? Um, and it led not to an abandonment of Marxism, but to a kind of re, in a way, the beginnings, or not the beginnings, but the, the, the escalation of a sort of re-reading of Marx, you know, discovery or, or a rediscovery, an emphasis, new emphasis on the early Marx, who talked a lot about alienation, and therefore highlighted the issue of, of workers' control and control over work and the dignity of work so that socialism was not equated with simply state ownership, but actually required for, for the Marxist vision to be met, required an end to alienation, which wasn't just a, an economic 
um, relationship, but one of control and power. Um, and so it, it began a sort of flourishing of Marxist, critical Marxist thinking <clears throat> and led to many journals and, and um, conferences and debates. Um, in particular, it led to the, the creation of a, a journal called The New Reasoner, <clears throat> which eventually became the New Left Review, and the, the history of the New Left Review is very interesting. Now, um, you know, in a way, the themes that came out of that, I'd say, are <clears throat> a, a real emphasis and, and, and um, desire to study workers' control, because that was clearly absent in the Soviet Union and absent from the kind of model of socialism that was based on the Soviet command economy. So that led to, or not led to, but was, but, but sort of created favorable conditions for the, the growth of a very important um, movement around workers' control. Again, it was all the time, a bit like TWT, combining action with, with thought so that it was a very um, reflective movement. And it was coordinated by an organization called the Institute for Workers' Control that brought together workers who, in that period, in the 60s, 50s and 60s, um, you'd seen economically the growth of workshop, uh, work, work, workplace power, you know, with the boom and trade union bargaining power growing. There was a huge growth in, in the shop stewards movement and the power of the shop floor. And in a way, as I talk, I want to, at the risk of a, a rather um, multi-leveled and therefore maybe um, seemingly kind of messy um, contribution, uh, I want to put the developments of the new left always in the context of what's happening economically, um, culturally and, and politically. <clears throat> and um, so economically, there was this growth of the shop stewards movement that many intellectuals, including intellectuals involved in trade union education, saw as the basis of a movement for workers' control. Another important thing was cultural developments. This was a time when, you know, in a way you'd got, this was the 50s after all, which was in terms of capitalist culture and, and, and um, political power and economics, was a very uncritical period. I mean, um, you know, there was the boom, consumerism, you know, hire purchase. So there was a kind of atmosphere of, even as the conservative prime minister at the time said, you've never had it so good. So that led to a, an atmosphere in terms of the dominant culture of complacency, quite a repressive attitude to social relations. So the nuclear family kind of thrived in the midst of all this, you know, domestic consumerism and the idea of, you know, living in different ways, challenging the family, challenging convention was, was quite sort of repressed. So you had the growth then of a whole cultural movement of playwrights um, like John Osborne, who wrote this book, this play, Look Back in Anger, very angry, um, you know, statement against this consensus. You had the emergence of, of people like Harold Pinter, you know, who'd look at the reality, which was becoming increasingly um, contrary to the promise of peace and 
and and um, equality that had been the promise of the post-war period. Uh, you had the beginnings of the of the imperial power and military power of the U.S. The growings of what an important American new leftist called C. Wright Mills called the industrial um, the military industrial complex. So you got a kind of illiberal reality growing throughout the 50s and then the early 60s to which these the this new generation of intellectuals that had left the communist party were reacting and criticizing and developing the tools to criticize but this was a period of um of relative quiescence and i just read something that from this book that um that um um that Charlie mentioned, where um, uh, Raymond Williams was a particularly important part of this grouping that I'm not sure if he'd been in the Communist Party, I think possibly he had. Um, but anyway, he, um, he wrote a book called The Long Revolution, which provides a historical perspective on this period of um, growing um, growing sort of critical consciousness and also um in in industry and in education because mass university education higher education was growing there was a kind of slow awakening in culture in media i remember there was a group called the free free communications group <clears throat> which, which people like alex coburn um would had started and which was a critique of the media, the BBC, you had satires like that was the week that was. Anyway, he talked about the rising determination almost everywhere that people should govern themselves. Because you also have the, I think he was also thinking of the um, the, the development of the anti-colonial movement, you know, the the movements against British colonialism, you know, in, in, in Africa, um, uh, and obviously India already, you know, you'd seen the um, the liberation of India. Well, I mean, it, it was obviously a very ambiguous one with the, the division of um, India and Pakistan, which was a sort of imperialist, colonialist division. But so you had the, the emergence across the world of a, a liberation movement against the colonialism of, of America, of, well, initially Britain and France and Spain. Um, uh, and yeah, he says, he considers this to be a lengthy, difficult and complex, but genuine revolution. Transforming men and institutions, continually extending and deepened by the actions of millions, continuously and variously <coughs> opposed by explicit reaction and by the pressure of habitual forms and ideas. Yeah, well, I won't go on. Um, and then you had, um, E.P. Thompson, he, he was, I think there was an important feature of him and, and, um, and Raphael Samuel and these social historians, where they were very attentive to what was happening beneath the surface of the institutions of the Cold War. I mean, this was a period when the Cold War, you know, was, was massive, you know, and therefore any explicit leftist statement publicly was seen as, you know, support for the Soviet Union. So um, at a very public level, it was very difficult for the left to surface. I mean, Nye Bevan, you know, the founder of the health service, he was fighting for the left 
and for CND. CND was growing at this time, and that was a very important sort of mass base for this emerging new left. It meant there was a movement that they were connected to. But, you know, he was like treated, you know, like Tony Benn has been in our era, well, uh, in the 80s. But, you know, he was he was treated as, you know, just complete scum, you know, just just completely, you know, derided by by snobbish Tories because he was a working class miner. And, and you know, it was just amazingly disgusting. But but Edward Thompson and so on, they would talk about, um, you know, how beneath, he said, beneath the polarisation of power and ideology in the Cold War world, a new rebellious human nature was being formed, just as the new grass springs up beneath the snow. And in a way, that's probably partly why he wrote the, the Making of the English Working Class, as he wrote during this period of relative quiescence. And in a way, a lot of these, these intellectuals from the Communist Party, they use that period to write books, which are now, you know, kind of crucial resources for us. And he quoted in this uh, a 19th century artisan and historian who said, people fancy that when all's quiet, that all is stagnating, but propaganda is going on for all that. It's when all is quiet that the seed is a-growing, Republicans and socialists are pressing their doctrines. So I, I took that as a rather encouraging statement that, you know, when things seem pretty dismal and, you know, defeated or quiescent, actually things are going on. And in a way, TWT is actually about planting those seeds and keeping them alive and, in a way, that's what we're trying to do with Red Pepper, nurturing the seeds that are, that are growing, as Henry Mayhew put it. Anyway, um, so this was all a growing, and you saw many things. You saw, as well as the cultural things that I mentioned, the playwrights and so on, you also had texts like Simon de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, you know, which my generation were reading when they were sort of at school. You know, I remember reading it. It, you know, it, when I was a school kid. And um, so this was like a seed that was growing that later in now we're coming up to 68. And this is the, in a way, a new, the beginnings of a new wave, another, you know, world shattering event. This time it was both in, in the East, in Central Europe, in Czechoslovakia, repeat almost exactly, not quite as devastating um, of the invasion of, um, Hungary, you had the invasion of the Czech Republic or the Czechoslovakia as it was then, um, because a movement was growing again for democracy and for a new kind of socialism. So Dubček, who was um, part of that, was trying to pioneer and practice a democratic socialism based on workers' control and democracy. And at the same time, or just before, you had the 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 um, events of May 1968 in Paris, but also in Mexico, and in a way emulating them in London, particularly the student movement. But the student movement always wanting to connect with with the workers' movement, as they did so successfully in in Paris and in, in across France. And so, in a way, 68 was like a moment of you, you know we use this word rupture, break. From the existing system and here in in britain and in the west it kind of added to the um 
the the dynamics of the previous new left a, a very strong critique of um of parliamentary socialism in a way ralph Miliband, he was a he was more in edward thompson's generation the generation he'd not been in the communist party but his friends like edward thompson were and he was part of that group effectively and he wrote parliamentary socialism you know in the 60s kind of looking at why the Labour Party was so right-wing and so parliamentary. I mean, he said it was dogmatic, not about socialism, but about parliament, its allegiance to parliament, to the British state, because after all, the British state is based on the idea of the crown in parliament. So MPs are, are not accountable to, to the people, as in many other countries they are, but accountable to the crown, which really means the state in parliament. So he, that was a crucial book that then influenced, you know, in a way, my, my generation of the new left, which came through 68 when we were radicalised in our approach to our courses, you know, PPE. I was in Oxford doing PPE and we all developed a critique of PPE and an alternative. I think, you know, Momentum and TWT have developed a sort of a, a people's PPE. Um, uh, anyway, all this course critique. At the same time, we were we were leafleting workers in Cowley in the car industry, um, and as a result, the disciplinary powers of the university tried to stop us and expel people who were doing this and who were making these kind of links. So, sixty-eight was very important. It was also important because it developed um, helped to develop some of the organisational principles of the new left, which I think also had their roots in in the 50s and, and and the reaction to the Communist Party. So even then, there was a belief in the importance of democracy. And so very important in, in the United States. And, and another feature I must emphasize here is the constant cross-fertilization. So we were very influenced by the student movement in 68 in the US. The, S, the students for democratic socialism. And they wrote a manifesto, the Port Huron Manifesto, which the central theme of which was participatory democracy. So from the start, the new left was about a deeper democracy than parliamentary democracy. On the whole, it wasn't saying we get rid of parliament, but that we it's not enough. We need, we need democracy in our daily lives. We need us. We need democratic assemblies to which MPs are accountable. We need a participatory democracy. And that was inspired particularly by the US, but, but also had its own important sources in, in the UK. And in, you know, it, we were very influenced by the German, the German SDS, which was also a very strong movement, anti-authoritarian movement, which, you know, Wilhelm Reich, I can't remember the book he wrote, but it was it was also very anti-authoritarianism in the family. So in a way, 68 was also the beginnings of the women's movement. Well, it didn't take form until 1970 with the big conference that many people maybe know about in Oxford. But we kind of, we lived the contradictions of a movement in 68, a, a mainly students movement, but not just, you know, there were many non-students part of it that was very highly democratic in its in its ethos but in its daily routines 
was effectively silencing women. Men were very unselfconsciously dominating and, you know, I mean, powerful and 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 sometimes it would, you know, be absolutely dreadful and women were expected to sort of do all the shit work. I mean, uh, at, but whatever, you know, we'd we'd meet in the, you know, we'd we'd bump into each other in toilets or on the way back from meetings and say, hey, you know, what's all this? You know, what what kind of liberation is this? And eventually out of all that came the women's movement and, and out of not just that, but also what was happening in society, the the um, the, the repressive nature of the, the family, the way in which the idea of the non-working housewife had been glorified. And then in the importance of books like Betty Friedan's book on, uh, I can't remember the exact name, but it was basically the silent problem, the sort of problem that was not spoken of women feeling isolated, you know, finding, bringing up children, you know, on their own, not enough, all these sort of silent, silent discontent that led to an explosion of what we called consciousness raising groups that was like the basic cell of the women's movement where we emphasized experience but not but still experience as the the beginnings of of insight <clears throat> if we analyze that experience critically and together we developed a sort of knowledge that was rooted in experience sorry <coughs> i've got a bit of a sore throat um, so the women's movement, in a way, I'd say it kind of fed into the new left and, and began to redefine many of the, the politics and principles of organisation. The process, it led to more emphasis on process and on new kinds of knowledge, uh, as well as on policies around the needs of women. Um, Sheila Robotham and Lynn Siegel, who was the author of Collective Joy, um, uh, wrote a book called Beyond the Fragments, Socialism and the Making of, no, Feminism and the Making of Socialism, where we tried to, to talk about the ways in which feminism needed to, to remake socialism or the way in which socialism needed to heed and learn the lessons of feminism to, to remake itself as a, a democratic and truly egalitarian movement. So that, that, that was 68 and, and it fed into <clears throat> the sort of workers' movement that was developing, and also the international movement. I mean, key was the movement against the war in Vietnam. And, and so we had an international consciousness, which I think also is a feature of the TWT that's developed from this tradition. So we, in the end, I'm having to be quick now, I think, um, we were defeated, or the workers' movement was defeated, particularly by that. In a way, Thatcher, you could say, and I think David Harvey puts it like this, was a sort of class war against, it was like a counter-revolution against the emerging um, transformative movement, if, if not revolutionary movement, <clears throat> that 68 represented and, and developed into. So if you like, there was a period of, of quiescence in, um, well, after the 70s, the 70s were a very vibrant time where all these movements came together, discussed many ideas, many kind of a bit equivalents of, um, um, of, of TWT. There was the convention of the left that Raymond Williams played a big part in, which, which had many workshops and ideas and 
led to organizations which continued on, like the Conference of Socialist Economists um, and others. So there are many continuities. You'll find this in the history of the New Left, that, that each phase produced something that lasted. I mean, New Left Review has lasted through all these different phases um, with Verso books. So that's a great achievement. Um, and then in a way what happened was what what was produced, I suppose the late the late 90s, um, you know, after things were kept alive, you know, there were movements, local movements, particularly new movements around housing, tenants movements, movements around cuts, and some kind of um, centers of political education. Ralph Miliband started a series of centers for Marxist education. I and others started a socialist center in Newcastle. You know, many different initiatives of this kind, trying to provide a, a sort of educational, intellectual, self-educational space in all these movements. Um, but, you know, the, the fact of a defeat of the miners particularly, although, you know, the experience of the miners' strike with all the kind of movements that came together, the women's movement, the gay movement, coming together to support the miners, was 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 pretty amazing and influential and led to a memory that has not gone and has been a shaping of people's imaginary and idea of what the left should be. Um, so then in a way the next wave you could say was what we call the alter globalization movement, which began with the um the the huge demonstration um in um in Seattle uh in the US against the um, the World Health, the World, what's it called, WTO, the World Trade Organization, which actually led to a massive success defeating their multilateral trade, uh, multilateral investment agreement, which was an attempt to completely globalize the, the movement of finance um, and, uh, and get rid of all national constraints and control. And this movement it led first to a lot of kind of counter summits, which were times that people came together internationally to, again, carry on this discussion about what socialism was, the sort of development of a new kind of socialist consciousness coming from reflecting on practice undogmatically and trying to generalize uh, and develop a new vision of a democratic socialism, which led to the world, um, the world social forums that were kind of in a way like international TWTs held in Brazil, you know, where the, they, they would just come out of a dictatorship, strong workers movement, the workers party, you know, in a way hadn't been defeated by, by well, in the end was certainly weakened by neoliberalism, but in a way was, it was a sort of uneven development. So they were, they were victorious in the late eighties um, and early nineties at a time when we were, we were weak. And in a way, they say the Berlin Wall didn't fall on us. I, they were developing a new democratic kind of socialism with all their emphasis on participatory democracy. That was emerging in Latin America as we were facing, you know, difficulties and defeats. So again, there was this international learning process and the sort of international, um, you know, gaining morale and a sense of what was possible from international examples which again, I think is a feature of TWT and its efforts all the time to have an international 
dimension at its conferences, including people who come from those countries. Um, so that, in a way, lasted throughout the um, first part of the 21st century, you know, with the European Social Forum and the development of a, a strong idea of a, a socialist or a radical alternative Europe, which maybe has influenced the whole kind of remain debate and the idea that there is an alternative. I mean, I won't go into that, but I think that idea of a European left has been important in the development of, a, of the new left. So, I mean, here we are um, in, in TWT and it's drawing on all these different strengths. I mean, another feature of the alter globalization movement, which was emerging at the same time as the internet and the web and the World Wide Web. And so you have this development of, a, of, of network socialism, new forms of organization that were very egalitarian, very fluid, very um, horizontal, you know, ideas of which came both from 68 and participatory democracy and then the women's movement. But then in a way, the international networks and the use of the internet, both in a way in, as forms of communication that were highly horizontal, you didn't have to go through the center to reach others you you could go directly um but also the metaphors of the of the internet the 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 very metaphor of network uh and and the kind of metaphors of of software open software sharing knowledge sharing design of systems and so on that's all been influential i think that's contributed to an even more radical new left in terms of process so i think you know, let's end there, but recognize that TWT is a phase in the development of a new left. I mean, I'd say we're still searching for socialism, not searching in the sense of it's out there, you know, like sort of America was out there for Columbus, but it's something that we've got to create ourselves from our own experiences directly, but also experiences we can learn from, from others. So in a way, the point of bringing people together is not just to to talk, but is to exchange experiences and learn from those experiences. Imagine, demand and build a world transformed.